Hi, my name is Heather Shorin Yeruso, and this is the Spark Zen Podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm delighted to be in conversation today with Ann Lore Davin. Ann Lore is an autistic Zen practitioner, an author, and a mother. She was diagnosed in 2010 at the age of 46, a life-changing and life-saving event she traces to her Zen practice. Anne Lore grew up on the west coast of France and emigrated to the United States in her 20s. Upon arriving in the United States in 1987, Anne Lore lived in Chicago, where she married and had a son. Forever searching for answers to the challenges of an undiagnosed autistic life, she moved to San Francisco in 1999. There she started a Zen practice at Green Gulch Farm in Marin County. And with proper medical care and other support, her life improved unexpectedly and dramatically. She now lives outside of San Francisco with her partner, Greg, and her son living nearby. Anne Lore teaches free online meditation, primarily for autistic and neurodivergent people. So thank you so much, Anne Lore, for joining me today on the Spark Zen podcast. And thank you, Heather, for having me. So let's see, Anne-Laura, the last time, well, the first time we met, which is also the last time we met, was back at Tassajara when Norman and Kathy Fisher did the practice period in the winter of 2019. So why don't we just start there as a jumping off point? What was it like for you to do your first monastic practice period at Tassajara well, first, I want to say that I had done a practice period at Gringo 20 years ago with Norman. Okay, so 20 years before that, yeah, you yeah, did right. a practice period yeah. with Norman. So, so that was a long a time ago. different. Tassahara, <laughs> I mean, is very different. And how was it for me? What a question. I mean, it was very, very difficult. I had asked for a room alone. I mean, as an autistic person, that's like a must you know, for me. And of course, I did not get it. But then I was sharing the room with a friend. And after two weeks, she could see that it did not work out for me, that I, I could not sleep. So finally, somebody moved away and I was able to have my own room. After two weeks there, I had said, OK, I can't do this. I, I was thinking of leaving. Why was it so important at Tassahara to have your own room. How does that help you as an autistic person who's practicing well, Zen because... in a very rigorous monastery? Mainly because we already sleep deprived. And so I can't afford losing more sleep, which I do if I share a room because I'm always on guard. I mean it. I never relax if I, there's somebody else. That was the problem. So you're never relaxed, even if it were like your own son or your partner was with you? Is it just a, a way that you're wired? Yeah, it's a way I'm wired. And sometimes my partner and I are together, but mostly we both have our own space. And sometimes we actually are very clear to the other. No, I need my own space there. Can you not be in my space? I'm the same way and I'm not autistic, so I understand. <laughs> that was a huge one at Tassahara. Heather, I got the one job there that was that made it okay for me to be there. And only one person, right? In the library, only one person. <laughs> I got it. Because you got to be the librarian during that yes. practice period. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that was really 
helpful. The beauty of Zen centers, I mean, Tassahara including, is there is very little, uh, you know, lights and noise, really. I mean, let's face it, you know, I was able to live with that very well. I like it, you know, except that some people had their flashlight. A lot of older people were in the dorm. The dorm. The dorm. And so they, they needed light. And so they put this very, very strong light in front. Oh, <laughs> but thank right. God for the umbrellas, right? Because of course the weather was terrible, remember? <laughs> we had a lot of rain. So you were able to use the umbrella to uh, shield yourself from exactly. the, the flashlights or the headlamps exactly. coming at you in the dark. That's as well exactly as the, it. You got it. <laughs> the spotlight outside of the dorm so nobody would trip coming down the stairs. <laughs> yes. So the quiet the lack of light pollution, no traffic, right? Everybody is walking through the valley, being in nature. How did that help you with your on the cushion meditation practice while you were at Tassahara? Well, the thing is that Zazen sitting has always been a major thing for me. This is actually the one thing that I feel best because usually I am trying to stay away from all stimuli. I mean, it's the only thing that makes sense with that, you know, I mean, there's no light usually. I mean, so I love Zazen. I, Zazen comes to me easy. I'm very, very fortunate. I'm not saying it's easy because it's very difficult at times, but it makes sense to me in a way. The reason I went to Tassahara in the first place, I mean, one of them, is because I wanted to practice harder, more monastic. I wanted to really dive down this beautiful practice. I, I mean, Zazen, I find beautiful. So Tassahara allowed me this. So I'm so very grateful for having done it. How do you feel like it, it helped your Zen practice to, to, to dive deep, as you said, into a Zazen in a monastic setting? I liked it. I honestly, Heather, I thrived. I mean, well, there was a lot of difficulties, just like I was telling you, but I actually thrived with Zazen. I don't mind sitting Zazen. Maybe because my entire life I have been so held down by many of my limitations, but Zazen is good for me. I, I, I can do Zazen best. <laughs> Isn't that awful? There's nothing no, to do. No, <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. Yes, I, I think it's wonderful that you, you do Zazen best, as you say. <laughs> Why don't you tell us how you first came to Green Gulch all those years ago mm -hmm. and when you first met Norman yeah. and did the practice period there. I know you had moved from Chicago, so why don't you just tell us a little bit about how you came to practice Zen in the first place? A friend in Chicago gave me for my birthday this book from Charlotte Jokobek, you know, nothing special. And well, it made, again, it made sense. But anyway, uh, in my autistic way of sensory stuff and also what I knew, anyway, it made sense. And then my yoga teacher, our yoga teacher, that friend and us were talking about this. And then the, uh, our yoga teacher overheard us and he talked to us about Green Gosh and how much he liked it. This yes. was while you were in Chicago. Yes. And then you decided to move from Chicago Check it out. Yes. to Green Gulch. What yes. year was that? 1999. Yes. 
Yes, that's, that's exactly how it happened. I mean, at first I went only for two weeks during my, I was a teacher, so during Easter vacation. And then I, I decided that I was going to move them for good, move to California and Green Gosh for good. Now, as you know, there were many difficulties and one of them was my son. So you lived for six months at Green Gulch. Could you tell us how practicing Zazen in nature at Green Gulch started to help you with the autism symptom? What? At this time, you were still undiagnosed. You didn't get an official diagnosis until 2010, right? Yes, you're right. So you were there and you were having all these issues arising because you're autistic and you didn't know it. In the middle of all that, while this is all happening, how is it helping you to practice? Well, you know, again, I go back to sensory, Heather. I know that not, not every autistics are the same, you know, but for me, it's a major, major thing in my life. So Green Gosh, I love the quiet. I love the no lights. I, I love the silence, most of it. It allowed me to go inside better, to hear myself for the first time, really. Uh, so sure, that was another, of course, that was living in a community as a, for socially having trouble person like me, it was very difficult. There were some people who liked me and there was those, there was no, not really much in me, in, in me at all. And there was those people who really did not like me and there were many of those. So anyway, does that answer your question? Yes. So you said first it was helpful for you to start to pay attention to what was going on for you inside your internal world. You had mentioned somewhere else about one of the epiphanies that you had was this is not your fault that oh, all yes. these issues are arising. Yes. Could you talk a little bit about how that brought you some relief that you were not at fault? Yes, I was not yet diagnosed. It seems to me such a long time ago already. I was always thought that maybe I could control that. Maybe it's me some, it was some, me doing something wrong that I had such sensory problems. And at the time, on top of that, you know, autism in United States has come a long way since then. So nobody really ever really paid attention or, you know, and back in France, when I was a child, they said they, they kept telling me that I was crazy, that I was like, a, you know, it was me. It was my fault. When I started to do Zazen, there is a turning point at some moment where I said, no, I cannot control this. I cannot control that I jump up when there is a loud noise. It happens. And so how did it help me is, well, then it's like, well, what do I do with this? How do I, I started to take a look at what, how to live best with this, you know, not, I can't say it, this was very incoherent at the time, but you know, more like don't push it away, you know, pay attention to this. Right. Become, become intimate with it uh -huh, right. rather than pushing it away. Right. And then the release around or the, the relief around, yes, exactly. it's not my fault. Mm -hmm. When, when you realize it's not your fault, there's this relief. You no longer internalize that. Oh, I am a bad person because I should be able to control this. It might be helpful for you just to tell us what some of the sensory issues were that, that you were experiencing. You mean during my life before? Yeah. So what were some of the sensory sensitivities that you had? That brought you to yoga and then brought you to Zen. In my book, I try to describe with a word. And the word that I made up is agror. 
A-G-R-U-A-R. Aggressive, rushed, and artificial. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? That's the word you made up in order for you to better understand these sensitivities. So those three words, aggressive, rushed, and artificial, are basically mainly describing all the things that are going to give me some stress. So when a, when a noise is aggressive, for example, and there are noise like just what I was talking about, so the bus's doors opening, how is it aggressive, that noise? Well, it's sudden, quick, it goes right inside me. It makes me cringe, cringe, okay, really. <laughs> and rushed same deals anything that goes fast so nature is not at all that and nor are zen sanders zen sanders are slow the whole idea is to take it slow i mean they're not always slow <laughs> so you had this sensory overload where you would get very stressed when there was aggressive quick sound feeling rushed you were talking in the in your memoir about how at one point you weren't even able to leave the house, right? Oh yeah, that, they shot through the roof at some point. Terrible. I mean, I've had them my entire life, but like livable, right? I could get out. But yes, when the physical, very interestingly, Heather, when I look back, it's when the physical pain got the worse, and then they shot through the roof, and then I could hardly go out. Yes. I know at some point you were wearing your earplugs and your noise reduction headphones, as well as a visor, right? Yeah, and a mask and, uh, and glasses and yeah. Well, yeah, that, I guess it was no problem for you to be in the pandemic since you already were used to wearing masks and things to shield your, your eyes and such. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> the <laughs> pandemic was not a big change with my sensory. Like, oh, look, I don't have to go out. That's great. <laughs> yes, well, though now I'm doing much better, but still, you know, I'm staying away. Let's face it. For example, it's funny. Recently, somebody was giving a talk at Everyday Zen, and it's always when people get older that they suddenly understand what I have experienced my entire life is that Oh, I can't go out in the evening. There is too much noise, too much everything going there. Yeah, I know. Just being overstimulated, all that sensory input. And I think for myself as well, I didn't realize there was so much sensory input in my life until I left my job and my life in Texas in 2008 and moved to Tassajara. And then I just started slowly feeling my body just decompress and open. And I didn't even know, I mean, of course I had been sitting Zazen off and on for years before I left, but sinking into Zazen every day and then also being in nature, I just started to, as yourself, you just start to calm, like your body mind just starts to calm down. And I, and I think that people just do not know, it's like a fish, they don't know they're swimming in the water. And all these people don't know that they are just being bombarded by sensory input. Every single sense is just on high alert. And when I came out of the monastery, even more so, I was like, why is there music playing while I'm getting gas? Not only that, I'm using the fuel pump and there's like a little television set, right? And so I always sort of had that sensitivity to sound, 
but it was even more pronounced when I left the quietude of the monastery. I can tell that you know exactly what I'm talking about, okay, because you describe it in a way that makes total sense with me, you know. Sometimes people we say that often with Tatsahara and all that, but it's not on the same plane. I don't know. I mean, how do we say that, you know? Sure. I mean, I think like when I was the head monk at Tassahara, we have to run that wake up bell every day, as you know, and it's very loud. It's a little bit heavy. It feels like it was forged back in the 1500s. And I had to wear earplugs and noise reduction headset from the shop in order for me to run it because I could not handle the sound. And even still, my ears would ring for hours afterward. Oh. I'd sit in meditation with the sound reverberating. Yeah. So it's interesting to me, I'm curious, part of our practice when we sit meditation is paying attention to what's arising in the sense doors. And you already sort of already had that practice because of your, your super sensitivity to all the sensory stimuli. So was it helpful? Was there a little bit of a silver lining that you already were attuned to noticing all the sensory input because of, no. of the autism? That is very interesting you say this because I've been asking myself the question, well, how come is it that I really do zazen and so much i mean I, I i practice two hours a day you know i mean and i'm not in a monastery right that's wonderful that's wonderful you know and i'm like well how come do i have this and i think yeah i think what you're describing is probably part of it i already had to like be you know paying attention to sensory stuff it really suits me and so in one way, like going to a Tassahara, that sensory stimuli decreases, and then it's a little easier, a lot easier actually to pay attention, especially to the mind, because it's not getting so much input. Your neocortex kind of settles a little bit and we become more like a fluid, right? We're not so focused on the intellect. The limbic system gets a little more prominent and we get resensitized to the natural environment, which of course permeates us. I love your image of the fish. Yes. Like the fish were in our element, you know? <laughs> yes. Right. So it's like, I was just thinking that about autism because you already knew that there was all the sensory input because of the horrific effect it was having on your life. And yeah. then when that was pulled away, I can't even imagine that kind of clarity and calm that would arise from having all that bombardment not be there anymore. Heather, you worded it very, thank you. Not many people realize that, but you, you did. Thank you. Well, thank you. I'm thinking, like I said, just how I was surprised for myself and someone who doesn't have autism. Although, as I mentioned to you, I do have this tinnitus, the ringing in my ears and also hyperacusis, which is a sens super sensitivity to sounds. And then also sensitivity to light. So I just was wondering that for myself, like how was it to all of a sudden have, must just felt like things just, yeah, how did it just feel like you just dropped, like a weight must have just dropped off of you or something, right? Yes, when I was at Green Gorsals 23 years ago, yes, it was amazing. This, you know, I even got goosebumps. 
at the first few months, I could still hear my former students screaming in the background in my ears. When you were working as a teacher in the public schools yes. in Chicago. Yeah. So yeah. when I was at Gringos, I remember the first few months, I actually had goosebumps from the silence. I know you can only speak from your experience, and, and I know your partner, Greg, is also autistic. What are some of the, the challenges they might have that someone like myself might not have? Well, you know, it's funny because Greg and I are very different. You know, every autistic person is so very different. What are some challenges? I think a big one, Heather, would be the, but it's always there, you know, it's the social aspect of going with, you know, in a community. That is not easy for us. Is that because there's so many people at once and that also is like sensory overload just that there's all these people even if you're not talking with them during zazen we're not talking with them but let's face it if you're gonna stay a little bit longer you're gonna talk with the people uh, even if it's not much plus as you know very well we get to know one another in silence why is that is because there is going to be tension then you know as soon as you rub that's my experience at least as soon as i rub i should say i with somebody else not so far that you know there is a friction happening and and that's i'm very raw and and that's never very easy that rubbing well there is that zen analogy that i heard before i went to tasahara and many times after which is we're like in a rock tumbler where we're all polishing each other's rough edges. Ah, wow. So, so <laughs> that helps us be smoother. So yeah. are there any other challenges? I know everybody who's autistic is different, obviously. So let me just ask you this. With your autism sit, your, how do you pronounce it? Aut sit? Yes. Aut so why don't you talk a little bit about aut sit and how, <laughs> how do you work with new people who have autism who are coming into space with you? How are you introducing them to Zazen? I'd love to hear a little bit about how you give them Zazen instruction and make them feel comfortable. Yes, Artsit. Yeah, Artsit.net for the more info. It's a sangha, you know, that my partner and I started nine years ago, actually. But the online part, which started at the beginning of the pandemic, is uh, the one that I mainly host. We have three parts to Artsit. So the online is one part. The once a year retreat is one part and the once a month in-person gathering, which all three are still going. And a lot of people come to the online because I understand, you know, it has always been a difficulty for me to go to in-person. I mean, could, could, would it be just a transportation and financial stuff? I'm not even talking about all the sensory things. So online is the big part where, you know, it, I do it three times a month. And I want to say one thing, Heather, is that I don't want people to get the impression that it is just only autistic people because it really is not. It, it is neurodivergent, but also anybody who is a friend of the autistic people. <laughs> Okay. So, so these art sits, this is really wonderful that you are offering this to people. So then how is it that you approach teaching people about Zen and Zen meditation who sh show up in this, in this Sangha? Well, let's face it. A lot of it is basically, you know, my partner always say, you know, that's Zen throw you in the, in the swimming pool and just, right. <laughs> 
So, you know, sitting, they see us sitting and we have decided to make a point because even though I'm mostly the online, Greg is mostly there and often giving me feedback and, you know, and so, and we are co-founders. So we have decided that we would from time to time bring up posture. Posture matters, but also other things matter too. I mean, like feeling comfortable and to see how, you know, like what is their their limits? I mean, really to explore a little bit. It's just like every song I have to, I have to talk about that. But basically I show, try to show the example. I mean, not that I'm all that example at all, but you know, uh, I sit Zazen without upright and still <laughs> the format is we start with, well, actually there is 20 minute informal chat for whoever wants to come before but then we start on the hour and we sit for 30 minutes just sit and then when we are only online i jump it right away into reading a, a buddhist text it's usually a reading that lasts maybe 10 minutes at the most and then after that i do a few comments now, Heather, they're not very much. I don't listen. This is free and I want to sustain it. I want to be happy with it. When you have to do it, you it's a lot, you know, giving a long talk. It's just a lot of work preparation and I don't want to go down. So I only do like a few comments, like two, three minutes comments. Then I open it to the group for the next usually 15, 20 minutes. And that's the end. So I'm curious then when people who are neurodivergent and autistic, there must be some particular, I mean, there's a sensory overload for some people. There's also, as you're saying, the social aspect of being with people. And then I imagine with some people also, just like people who aren't neurodivergent or autistic, that the issues of paying attention, right? Are there any like unique challenges for people who are neurodivergent or autistic around just the basic practice of following their breath or counting the exhales or paying attention to sound or even just being able to sit or stand still or lie down and be yeah. still? Yeah. I want to say you would be surprised. Okay. I mean, it's funny because, but they're just people like you and I, and just, it's the same as any other Sangha. Some people surprise me okay i know them in real life and i know how they have they talk a lot and have a, and move a lot and all that do zazen completely put for 30 minutes nothing really i've, I've seen it more than okay. once okay well, that's, that's wonderful because that that dispels not that i think about this often but i was just curious because I imagine then people are coming to the art sit because it is a community with people who have a similar experience in a way, right? Or have similar challenges in a way. You know, the thing is, I think it's just a sense of support, of understanding one another that comes through, you know? Oh yes, we do have some, some of us, a lot of, not everybody, but a lot of us have sensory problems. So we recognize that. I mean, Greg, just my partner and I, Greg and I are very, very different, but we both have sensory issues, even though his are very different from mine and nothing as much as mine. I started this because I want to offer meditation, the chance to meditate to people. But I am also always impressed by how it's just people, Heather, just people. 
Honestly, you would come to my group, you would not know. Oh, well, maybe during the discussion, because we will, we will say we are sometimes, okay? So then you would know. But when you come to do Zazen, and it's just nothing different. I'm sorry. You don't have to apologize. I was just curious. That's all. Why don't you just lay out a little bit of what prompted you to leave France, which oh, is where you're that's... born? I left France mainly because I was wanting to try to figure what was going on. I was unhappy. Okay. I was not happy in France and I decided to try to see in other in the United States. And let's face it, differences are much better accepted in many ways. I'm not saying France do not, does not, but there's so many people from different places and countries here. You came to United States in 1987. Yes. And then so, when was your son born? In 92. 1992. I actually played tennis too. I mean, I never played at the level I used to. I mean, I lost it when I was basically somewhere around 18, but I always, you know, wanted to try. Right. And mm -hmm. so I met his, my son's father at a tennis event. And when my son was born, my sensory now before my son, I kind of could not pay attention to it. The problem for me as an autistic person was more, well, it was there, the, all the sensory problems, but it was more the social things a lot were very difficult, but sensory were too, so in France and, you know, but when I came here, it was, well, first I became vegetarian, Heather, and what can I say? I had plenty of digestive problems before in France and becoming a vegetarian turn things around for me first. That was the first thing that changed things really in my inside. You know, I, I do better. I mean, I don't know if you have read upon that in, in terms of autism and the food connection, but there is a huge problem with digestion and, and things like that. I've not really read much about autism per se and food. However, many of us in America, the way we deal with food we don't always make the correlation. I'll speak for myself growing up in the 70s and 80s. My parents didn't say anything to us about eating tons of sugar. We didn't go to McDonald's and all these fast food restaurants because of when they were born, they weren't really around. Of course, later on, as I, you know, you'd read more about it. Sugar is a drug. It's a poison. It's a toxin, like many other things, alcohol. And for some people, animal protein. And for other people, it's dairy and gluten. I do know from my own reading that there's lots of issues with our food and how it affects us physically, emotionally, and, and mentally. When we say autism and food, it's more like autism and digestion and all the, you know, it, it's hard to swallow things. And anyway, for, for me, it was a, pro a real problem. And so once I arrived in the United States at age 23 and I became vegetarian by, again, because I stumbled upon, <laughs> I mean, the, the guy I was with was vegetarian. That <laughs> so, made it easier. You know? The birth of your son, in some way, sort of pushed you toward, well, obviously it exhausted you and everything else just became more exacerbated because, right. yeah. because of being a mother. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, but on the other hand, you know, I always say, because lots of autistic people often ask me, well, about having children. And I always say that, well, it certainly took a toll on me, but it also made me grow up. Like many things, when someone becomes ill, all of a sudden 
it accelerates something, right? Because you're like, oh my gosh, I can't just keep ignoring all these issues that are arising because now I have a son or a daughter or a partner or I'm ill and I have to really pay attention to it. Uh, Otherwise, it's going to keep getting worse and you can't just keep limping along the way you were before physically, literally, or metaphorically. You have to start to take responsibility. Yes, I think that's one reason why I decided to go and live at Gringosh is because I figured that I could not take care of my son the way I was. I had to take care of myself and get myself in better shape in order to be able to be with him. And what was going on for you was you were working as a teacher in Chicago. You had a son, you and your husband got divorced. And amid all of this, you were realizing that you need to change your life. And this is partly because you started to seek out yoga, right? You started practicing yoga. Yes, yes. Yoga was a big, would you say, pre-step to Zazen, I think? Sure. Help you cross the threshold into practicing Zen. Yes, I think that a lot of people experience that. I mean, because, you know, you do yoga and you open up inside a little bit. And then at the end of the yoga physical practice, you actually get some moment of stillness. You have, you know, really what they call relaxation where. (laughs) I love, I love the corpse pose myself. Yes, (laughs) exactly. I just get to lie here on the floor. This is awesome. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And that's how you introduced to Zen, right? Somebody gave you one of Joko Beck's books, which is also one of the first books I ever read about Zen about two years before I went to Tassajara. Oh. I had read a couple of her books. Oh, yeah. Wow. She was a powerful teacher. Yeah, obviously. Yes. Yes. You spent six months at Green Gulch. You arrived there around 1999. What was some of the transformation that started happening for you while you were in that natural setting, that quiet setting, that introspective setting? We already spoke about the major one, which is, it's not my fault, you know, that I cannot control this. And also what another one that I found actually when I was at Gringos is that there is beauty in silence in and friendship. You you really get to learn about somebody through silence. I I did not know that. And that was wonderful to find out that, you know, at first when I arrived at Gringos, I was very I, I am easily intimidated. And so I was very intimidated. And I remember this feeling of, no, these people are really warm in many ways. When you're talking about that intimacy, it is interesting that a certain type of intimacy beyond words arises, not only with our being with the community, but also with ourselves. So Gringos is is a monastery that you know, and you know how the rooms are tiny. I loved my own little tiny room in this silence. And there was a window and there was this huge tree that I... (laughs) But I missed my son, Heather, okay? This really was difficult. Of course, yes. Leaving your son behind. It was a necessary step. And yes. yes, it's obviously very difficult for mothers to leave behind their children, even if it's with their biological father. So then your son eventually came to join you in and live with you in, in California. Yes. I, I just want to say that I'm so impressed with your continued Zazen practice. Like that is a constant since you showed up at Green Gulch, just practicing every day. Yes, I don't know. I, I 
I remember trying to tell that to people at, at, at Gringos that this was going to stay with me, but you know, they did not be, you know, they have so many people coming in and away and they don't know. And I knew that I was not going to walk away from that. Even with all the thing with my son, I did not consciously plan, you know, oh, I'm going to willfully force, you know, keep doing Zazen. But, you know, the morning Zazen just stuck with me even through work and, and my child, child care and everything. I mean, I kept sitting in the mornings a little bit, always at least half an hour. That was my minimum. I mean, basically uh, at that time. And then well, it increased, right? Little by little, like the past 15 years, maybe over 10 years, but it has been two hours a day. That's really amazing that you're living with everything you have going on in your life, that you're still attending to this core practice of meditating every day. And so how do you feel that, and I hope I'm not exaggerating, how do you feel that Zen meditation and the study of the Buddhist teachings, how do you feel like that's saved your life? Like yes, totally. Oh, yes. I mean, I would never be even here. I mean, if it was not for that, it's not that easy to stay with Zazen. So I am really, really, really grateful that I stayed with it. I mean, it's true that, you know, all the teachers that tell you stay with it, keep at it and all that, but you know, you don't know. Well, I Gringosh, I started to see though you know, maybe that's another thing is i started to see pretty quickly at Gringosh how much it helped me though i was still kind of a, no really a mess complete mess but and, you know zazen it's just beautiful and you know the mystery is how do we we can't put it in words mm -hmm. how you know it's like a recipe i always say to people did you ever hear that image heather I don't think so. So tell me. Well, you know, you, you may know the recipe by heart. You may have all the ingredients and all that, but until you do it, you really don't know it. And every time you maybe make that recipe, it's different. That too. Depending on, <laughs> depending on many causes and conditions, your mood, yes. the, the quality of the food yes. you're using, the amount of food you're using, the spices, the <laughs> herbs, <laughs> the kind of cookware you're using, everything is involved in making that recipe. And each time it comes out differently. When you were diagnosed with autism in 2010, did you notice any change in your Zazen? Was there a difference for you after you had this epiphany, which obviously was liberating in some ways that you finally could figure out a way to proceed with some structure around resolving or attending to all this, all these sensory issues. Yeah, that's a great question. The quality of my life improved. Right, 100%. Your quality of your life improved, so therefore... Zazen. Zazen improved. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Or is it the other way, right? <laughs> Who knows? Not one, not two. So you're sowing your queso to become a priest in the everyday Zen tradition, which was founded by Norman and Kathy Fisher. I'm curious, what prompted that for you? And when did you make that decision and have those conversations initially with your teacher? So what prompted the sewing and of the idea of become a teacher? First, you know that being a teacher is not really being a teacher, both anyway. But other than that, it's just very practical, which is that I found myself 
teaching without being a priest. So, you know, and I want to be kosher kind of. Well, there's also. many, many, many wonderful lay practitioners. You don't have to ordain, become a priest to practice and teach Zen, obviously. Another thing too, let's face it, is let's face it, it's, it's a huge part of it, is that I'm completely committed to this practice. So to sum it up, Zen is life, life is Zen. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's exactly it though. <laughs> so when did you begin sewing your Okesa? Well, I began a while back during the pandemic. <laughs> so it was hard because, well, it has been hard because no teachers around, you know, I'm not in a monastery, okay? And the pandemic on top of that means, you know, uh, so I have to thank again, Greg. Greg is a real engineer. So thank God for me, thank God for me, you know, he's the one who is figuring out how to arrange the piece and pin and iron and all that. So are you finished with your okesa? Well, almost. I have to uh, put the patches. So we put the ties through the other day and yeah, almost. But I have the zagu to finish. I'm halfway through to many people I've helped. You know how it is, right? Yes, it's the community, right? Yes. It takes a community to help one one Zen priest, so Harakasu, Okesa, and Zagu. Yes. So ha has a date been set? Yes, it's going to be November 30th. Oh, fantastic. So just a couple of months away. Yes. Well, it's great congratulations. Fun. I'm so excited for you, and I'm excited for Zen. Thank you. And Thank I'm excited for all those people who have autism, and neurodivergence, that they have a safe, secure place to go to experience what both of us have experienced, the transformative practice of Zen meditation and the three jewels, Sangha, yes, yes. Dharma, and Buddha. Yes, beautiful. Yes. And Laura, it's been a pleasure doing this podcast with you. I'm so glad that we were able to reconnect after all these years. And I'm very thankful and grateful for your dedicated practice, your perseverance to not only grow as a person, but also to offer, offer this beautiful gift of this practice to so many other people. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Spark Zen podcast. I hope you found this conversation illuminating and engaging. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to my Spark Zen Substack newsletter and follow me on Twitter at Spark Zen. The opening and closing music is courtesy of my friend Jeffrey Cantu and Alexis Georgopoulos.